Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9, to a section that we began to look at carefully last week. It is, in some ways, a digression from a larger discussion that Paul is having with us in Romans 9 through 11, but a necessary digression, as we will see a necessary component, really, of his overall argument as he introduces for us themes in just a few short verses here that he will pick up again in, in chapter 11 to wrap up this entire view of Israel. Because if you remember, this is the background of the whole section. He's discussing God's work among the nation of Israel. His personal grief that his fellow Jews and kinsmen were not in large numbers believing at this point. And he's commenting on the fact that because of that, some people would say that God's word was failing or God's word had failed. They, had, they would claim that God had promised and he had to restore Israel, that God had promised uh, that he would bring about all of his good promises to the, to the patriarchs in um, full with the nation of Israel. There were Certainly always believing Jews, but that national level of belief had never really happened. And so there were some people who questioned whether or not those things were still even true. And they questioned whether or not Paul's gospel was in fact fighting against those things. Paul asked the question, you remember in verse 6 of Romans chapter 9, when he says, or he states it, it's not as though the word of God has failed. His basic supposition here, his basic uh, answer to the question you might say, is that God's election of Israel as a nation has to be understood as working through his election of certain individuals within the nation. So that you cannot divorce this idea of God's individual election and God's natural election between the two because they are bound up with one another. This is a concept sometimes called the remnant, so that there is an Israel within Israel. There is an elect Israel as a subset of a larger national Israel. That's what Paul is saying even there in verse 6, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And those who were a part of this elect group were not simply a part because of birth. It didn't take simply birth, although obviously to be a part of Israel, they had to be born in Israel. But, but there was more than that. There wasn't just a birthright. There wasn't moral or religious attainment. It wasn't any of those things. The reason that they were a part of this subset of Israel within Israel is because God chose them. God elected them. Or as in Paul, Paul's example in verse 11, with Jacob and Esau, although they were, they were twins, they were born from the same uh, uh, man and the same womb in their mother, he says in verse 11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Rebecca, their mother, was told the older will serve the younger. Paul gives that, then he goes on to quote from Malachi, Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. That is, before they were ever born, God decided to love one and decided to hate the other. 
And this is his explanation of why there is an Israel within Israel, why there is an elect Israel within national Israel, and why you're not seeing in his day any kind of national level work in Israel as a nation. And so he says more plainly down in verse 16, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Now Paul knows that this is disturbing for a lot of people. He knows that this is a difficult doctrine. In fact, even to our own day, perhaps no doctrine in Scripture uh, brings more negative reaction than the doctrine of election. It's found all over Scripture, but still when people read it, they have a a reaction to it, and Paul understands that. He understands that, but he also understands what is at stake in this, particularly as it relates to the credibility of God's Word, as it relates to God's person, and as it relates to God's glory. And so, he doesn't just acknowledge the the, the, the problem, he doesn't just acknowledge the question, but he begins to address these potential objections in one of the most detailed defenses of the doctrine of election you'll find anywhere in Scripture. And he addresses the potential objections, uh, first of all, that relate to God's fairness, how, how he could still condemn people if this is true, and, um, and second of all, whether this is even just. Listen to the way that he, he says it, beginning of verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You then, uh, excuse me, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? For what is molded, or excuse me, will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has has the potter no right over to the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honor, honorable use, another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory? Now you can hear there the two main questions that Paul raises in light of God's election. Is there injustice in this whole scheme? And secondly, if no one can resist his will, then how can he still find them at fault? Well, he is answering those things for us. He's telling us exactly how all of this works in this section here. And he's really going right at the heart of some of the most basic assumptions behind these questions. Assumptions about ourselves and assumptions about God. And he answers the questions by then talking about God's nature and talking about our nature. And of course, doing it all 
as he ought to do from the scripture itself. And so we began to look last week how he answers the first question, is there injustice with God? And we began to see how how he answers that in in our, our first point, that God's election must be understood in light of the overall nature of God and of man. That's his answer to the first question. God's election must begin, first of all, with a proper understanding of God, which is where Paul takes us, basically telling us that God is of such a nature that His mercy only depends on His mercy. So then, as he, as he says in verse 16, it depends on nothing else. It, it depends not on human will, not on exertion, but on God who has mercy. Or as he quoted there, uh, the God's words to Moses in the book of Exodus, God says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. And if you were with us last week, you remember how we sort of unpack that statement. It is a circular statement. It is a, a statement whose justification is in itself. I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy is similar to God's statement about who he is when he says, I am that I am. In other words, God is saying, I exist because I exist. I don't need any other reason. I don't need any other cause. I didn't need something outside of me to cause me to exist. In the same way, he's saying, I don't need anything outside of me to cause me to be merciful. I don't have to look at anything. I don't have to learn anything. I don't have to... I don't have to evaluate anything. I don't have to do any of that. My reasons for my mercy are contained within myself. Why? Because I'm God. Because that's the definition of God. The definition of God is freedom from any kind of outside obligation to anything. If God wasn't that way, he wouldn't be God. So his mercy depends on his own mercy, not on human virtue, not on human efforts, not on human deeds, not on human choice, simply on himself. It is his freedom to save whomever he chooses. It's a matter, we might say, of his own self-determination. But if mercy is a matter only of God's self-determination, then what about man? If in salvation God's mercy is unrestrained by anything outside of himself, then what about man? Is he free? Does he have the same kind of freedom? Or is there some kind of, uh, some, some sort of external compulsion or force that causes man to believe or not to believe? When men and women believe or not believe, is, is this nothing more than them exercising their own free will, or is it the result of some force or some power outside of themselves? Well, the verses we're going to look at today take us right into the heart of that understanding. And this really 
kind of deals with, if you will, the second part of Paul's answer to the first question. The question of whether or not God is just in this manner of salvation. As we said, God's election must be understood in light of the nature of God. It must be understood also in light of the nature of man. And we've sort of looked at that side of God's nature. Today we're going to look at the side of man's nature. And that comes to us in verses 17 and 18, where Paul says, and I'll read it for you one more time, the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Paul is, as he's done all along, he is using the scripture once again. He's moved from Abraham and Isaac all the way up to Jacob and Esau and then to Moses. And now he's taking us to yet another biblical account, the account of Pharaoh. And through this quotation, he introduces two concepts really that are vital, or I should say three concepts that are vital to us understanding God's election as it relates particularly to unbelievers. We know that when it comes to believers, God is merciful to them. But we also know that when it comes to unbelievers, or I should say, uh, we, all, we need to know when it comes to unbelievers, what is God's role in their unbelief? Well, first of all, we could take note of His role of patience. He has a role of patience. This is really one of the things that Paul's highlighting by quoting from Exodus 9, the passage about the ten plagues. He writes there in verse 17 about what God says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up. There was, there was a work that God had done in Pharaoh. And the work at least in this passage, is described as, as raising up. Exegero is the word, really. It's used sometimes of resurrections. It's used sometimes of someone being appointed to a place or a position, lifted up to a position. But in this particular context, it seems to be used in the sense of simply upholding someone or causing them to stand or causing them to endure when they otherwise would have fallen. Causing someone to stand in that sense. As, uh, as we'll see, this is where Paul eventually goes in the context of Romans 9. After verse 19, when he begins to talk about God enduring unbelievers with much patience. But if you... If you could, for just a moment, turn with me to the book of Exodus and turn with me to Exodus chapter 9. This is, as I said, the passage that Paul quotes for from. It's also the well-known passage uh, concerning what we call the ten plagues. They're really not plagues in the technical sense. That is to say, they're not, they're, they're not some sort of infectious disease, not all of them, of the body but we call them the plagues because primarily in the old Latin Bible known as the Vulgate, that's what they were called. The, the, the Hebrew word uh, magepa comes from the word literally meaning to throw something. 
And so the Latin translates this as a strike, a plagas, which we then call a plague, the ten plagues. But these are really God's ten throws or God's ten blows, as sometimes they're called. God's haymakers, if you will, as God is hurling one after another these assaults against Egypt. And and you'll occasionally hear people refer to this instead of the ten plagues as the ten blows. God was landing blow after blow after blow against Egypt. First of all, turning all of their water in their land into blood. Secondly, causing frogs to overrun the land. Thirdly, came gnats. And then fourthly, came flies. In a fifth blow, God causes the livestock of Egypt to die of some disease. And then in a sixth blow, God sends a disease of boils on the people. Blow after blow after blow at a national level. And it's after this sixth plague in Exodus chapter 9 that Paul finds these verses. Moses gives us something of an interlude here. It's unlike all of the other plagues. It's an extended discussion, an extended explanation with some dialogue back and forth between Moses and Pharaoh that isn't found in any of the other plagues. And really through this, Moses is giving us insight into Pharaoh's responses through all this. And we can read in Exodus 9, beginning in verse 13. He says, excuse me, I'm in Genesis 9. That won't do us very much good. Exodus 9, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews. Let my people go, that they may serve me. For this time, I will send all my plagues on you. Uh, excuse me. For this time, I'll send all my plagues on, uh, on you yourself and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there's none like me in all the earth. For by now, I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show my power so that my my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You'll notice there in verse 16, God is declaring what he could have done. What he could have done, but he didn't. He could have brought immediate judgment. He could have brought immediate um, eradication of Egypt and of Pharaoh. He could have completely wiped them off the face of the earth, but he didn't. Why? Well, in one sense, we could say we don't know. God is patient for his own reasons. He endures rebellion from hateful sinners and from unbelievers for his own reasons that we can never know. And what God is telling Pharaoh, first and foremost, is I have been patient with you. What I could have done is not what I did. I could have wiped you out, but I haven't. Could have put out my hand, I could have struck you and your people. I could have caused you to wilt and to falter and to fail, but I didn't. 
God demonstrates a certain degree of mercy, even though he has the right to judge. In fact, what does he say? I caused you to stand. I raised you up. I put you in place. This is what he did. In contrast to verse 15, you'll see verse 16. For this purpose, I've raised you up. To show you my power. Instead of cutting you off, I have stood you up. God has permitted Pharaoh to withstand all of these blows. We might even say that God has enabled Pharaoh to withstand. In fact, this is exactly where Paul takes us in Romans 9. Instead of the withering, uh, 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 or I should say, instead of unbelievers withering under the fierce hand of God's judgment, they are at times preserved. What does Pharaoh do? He hardens his heart. Or, Or more to the point, God hardens his heart. Paul, of course, says that in the next verse of Romans chapter 9. He then has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Paul's jumping ahead in the text, but he's telling us what is essentially happening with Pharaoh is that as as blow after blow after blow happens, instead of Pharaoh wilting, he hardens himself. In fact, God hardens him. If we go through the narrative in Exodus 9, we'll see this down in verse 18. Uh, We read, Behold, about this time tomorrow I'll cause a very heavy hail to fall, such as never been in Egypt from the day that it was founded until now. Now therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter for every man and beast that is in the field and, and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. So here God is sending the seventh blow, the seventh plague. It is hail unlike anything in Egypt's long history. But God gives a warning so that the people can respond in belief And some do. Some Egyptians take their cattle and put them inside under shelter. Others do not and end up losing not only their cattle but also their slaves. And then down in verse 27, we read, Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord for There has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go and you shall stay no longer, end quote. Now here is a confession of sin. In fact, it's the first time in in Egyptian history where a monarch admitted fault. The first time that we have any record of that, the first time certainly in the the Exodus uh, record that you have a confession of sin from Pharaoh, a verbal testimony of submission to the Lord. And I know what it would be like if we had that today, if someone came along and said to us, well, I've sinned and and, uh, whatever the Lord says I'll do, I know what we do. We just sort of, no questions asked, throw open our arms, pat them on the back. Moses isn't so naive though. He understands that there is a world of superficial professions of faith that take place all the time. And so in verse 29, Moses said to him, 
As soon as I've gone out of the city, I'll stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail so that you may know the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. And we read in verse 33, so Moses went out of the city and from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord and the thunder and the hail ceased and the rain no longer poured on the earth. But when Pharaoh saw the rain had hailed and the thunder ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart. He and his servants. The heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people of Israel go. That's typical. You know, someone gets in a tight spot, someone finds himself in difficult circumstances because of their own sinful choices or, or even the chastening hand of God and you have some superficial expression of repentance until the circumstances are gone. And then their true character and nature comes right back. And this really moves us really from that necessary understanding of God's patience with Pharaoh. He could have wiped him out, but he didn't to the necessary presupposition that's behind all of this. From from the patience to the presupposition as it relates to Pharaoh's heart. Exodus 9 simply says, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Then Moses comments in the next verse in the passive voice, the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. Now when you read that, there are all kinds of people who enter into this silly debate about whether or not you can find in the book of Exodus a statement about God hardening Pharaoh's heart first or Pharaoh hardening his own heart first. Well, just to comment on that briefly, Exodus 4.21 is the first time you find any reference to it. And what we read is, the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let my people go. But whether or not that is the first expression of Pharaoh's hardening, or whether or not it was some expression about Pharaoh hardening his own heart, the sequence in the text is not the point. The text presupposes that Pharaoh has a hardened heart against God. It presupposes that because it presupposes that he's an unbeliever. In other words, God's hardening is not what causes Pharaoh's spiritual insensitivity. Pharaoh is insensitive to the things of the Lord because just like every other person born in this world, he is born spiritually dead. Someone, uh, someone uh, uh, approached this passage in this, this um, series of statements about Moses' hardening and this whole debate They want to approach it with some notion of some sort of neutrality on the part of Pharaoh, some sense of neutrality in Pharaoh's heart when it comes to good and evil, and they define this as the free will of Pharaoh. Freedom, for them, means neutrality. Pharaoh was neutral when it comes to good or evil. He was free from any compulsion to either of those. But the Bible, you see it. It allows no such notion of neutrality. Mankind is not neutral. He is, as the theologians say, he's fallen. 
Men and women have hearts that are inclined towards evil. As Genesis 6 had already said, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That was, of course, before the flood, but even after the flood, there's no sense that things changed as immediately as civilization builds up again around Noah, they attempt to exalt themselves to heaven in place of God by building a tower at Babel. And this is a biblical picture of mankind, no matter where you go. Paul talked about it in Romans chapter 8. The mind set on the flesh is death. To set the mind on the flesh, uh, excuse me, is, is life and peace. The mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are of the flesh cannot please God. Or as he said, Romans chapter 3 earlier, that there's none good... There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they all have become worthless. None does good. Not even one. Just quoting from the Old Testament there. Ephesians chapter 2, he reminds us that as unbelievers we were dead in trespasses and sins in which we once walked following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived. In the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So all of mankind, even those who believe, all of mankind, we were all born in a state of spiritual deadness. We were all born in a state of hostility towards God. We were all born with a hardened heart. Perhaps most helpful is Paul's statement later in Ephesians chapter 4 when he says in verse 18 or verse 17 he says unbelievers have a futile mind but then in verse 18 he says they're darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardness of their heart. Paul says the unbelieving mind is futile Because it is darkened, it is alienated, and it's hardened. They are impeded by a natural mental fog that blots out the divine light and life. And without that, without that connection to God, without that life, They are no better than a corpse in the mortuary that you can speak to all you want. It will not respond. It cannot hear. It cannot react to stimuli. Paul lists there in Ephesians 4 the ignorance that's in them. It's not, this isn't innocent ignorance as we saw in Romans chapter 1. God has made his presence evident in all the world by the things that are made. And what people do is they see and they know that God exists, but Romans 1 says they suppress that knowledge in unrighteousness. So this isn't innocent ignorance that we're talking about when he says that they're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them. What he's saying is that they, they, they refuse to acknowledge and glorify the God that is obvious to them. It is a deliberate refusal. 
purposefully ignoring what they know to be good and right. Sinful man's whole thinking process then is characterized from the beginning by darkened understanding, ignorance of necessary data, and hardness to sound truth. Where does all this come from? Where does all this come from? It's not outside of man. It's, it's not that he lacks information. It's not that if you give him enough information, if you give him enough evidence, then he will see and reach the right verdict. Scripture is clear. You can give him the truth and he'll suppress it. The problem is not his environment. It isn't the fact that he was raised, you know, in, in, uh, in down and out circumstances or he was raised in the wrong kind of uh, 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 home life or culture or any other stuff. And, and so therefore he turns out this way towards God. The problem is not outside of man. Everything Paul tells us is the problem is inside of man. It is in his heart. He doesn't need more evidence of miracles. He doesn't need more evidence of the resurrection. He doesn't need more evidence of the life of Christ. Pharaoh is the prime example of this truth. His mind was not lacking in information. He wasn't denied the opportunity to hear from God, to see God's miraculous works, but even in the face of God's power, he rejected God. Why? Because he was darkened in his understanding, because he was alienated from the life of God, and because he had a natural-born hardness in his heart. In other words, we don't need the text of Exodus to tell us one way or the other whether Pharaoh hardened himself or whether God hardened him first. We know the answer. Pharaoh was born hardened. And so the testimony of Scripture is that we were all born this way, which from within ourselves then, we freely choose to reject God. God isn't violating somehow Pharaoh's free will by leaving him in his unbelief or even hardening him in his unbelief. Pharaoh is choosing to do exactly what his heart wants to do, which is rebel against God. Jonathan Edwards in his masterful work, The Freedom of the Will, states, quote, the will is plainly that by which the mind chooses anything, end quote. And then he goes on, to explain that the mind chooses by what it desires. And so the question is, what governs the will? What governs our will? It is our corrupted desires. Don't let anyone tell you that somehow embracing the doctrine of election is going to violate man's free will. We want that. We want that. Because in our free will, we all freely choose to reject God. What I need is God to arrest my will and cause it to do what it would not naturally do, which is believe in Him. Pharaoh's heart was perfectly free to do what he wanted to do. He 
wanted to exalt himself. That's what Exodus 9.17 says. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. That's what he wanted to do. He wanted to exalt himself against the people of God. He wanted to exalt himself against God himself. He was alienated from God. He was hostile to God. His heart was hardened. He was insensitive to conviction. But what happens then is that God increased his insensitivity. Pharaoh had a hardened heart and what happens is God steps in and hardens his hard heart. God took his hard heart and hardened it even more. Some people call this a a judicial hardening. We're prepared for this because we saw back in Romans chapter 1 that when people rejected God, God gave them over to depraved minds. It says in verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what they ought not to do. So in this hardening of Pharaoh or other men's hearts for that matter, God is in fact already judging them for a rebellion that they have already demonstrated against him. Or as Jesus says in John 3, whoever believes in him is not condemned But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. So so Pharaoh's already judged. He's already under judgment because he hasn't believed. And so as John Calvin says, quote, If all whom the Lord predestines to death are by condition of nature subject to the judgment of death, of what injustice toward themselves may they complain? End quote. How can you say there's injustice with God when he judges a rebel? There is none if we properly understand their condition, if that is presupposed, it will leave them liable to judgment and death. And when God judges, there is no injustice. And so in the narrative of the ten plagues, God judicially hardens Pharaoh's heart, makes him more callous, makes him more hardened, so that even as he sees these mighty works, he doesn't wilt, he doesn't yield In fact, in this hardening, he becomes more and more stubborn against God. And it's this hardening by God which enables Pharaoh to withstand so many of these blows from God. Other men of weaker stature might have crumbled under the weight of all this this judgment, but Pharaoh's heart was hardened by God and he, God actually then enables Pharaoh to stand up to some of it. And in this sense, God raised Pharaoh up. He put Pharaoh in that place through hardening his heart. Or hardening his heart, we might say, was God's instrument for the purpose of raising up Pharaoh which is really the third thing that we have to understand when we're thinking through this issue, which is not just the patience that God had already shown with a rebel, not only the presupposition of his his nature, 
But we need to understand the purpose why God's doing this. Which is really the point in the Exodus passage. For this purpose, I have raised you up. To show my power so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God would have been justified immediately to have wiped him out. But he didn't. He patiently endured his hardness. He even solidified him in it. Why? Well, part of the reason was he wanted to show his power and to make his name proclaimed. God forestalls his judgment. He shows temporary mercy in this rebellion, partly because this ongoing rebellion is being used to set a stage of God's mercy. It is demonstrating God's patience. It's demonstrating God's long-suffering. It's demonstrating His work among His elect. And this is exactly where Paul takes us in Romans chapter 9. As we'll see in verse 19, he begins to uh, expand all of that that we'll get into in the coming weeks. But let me just close by saying this. This hardness of Pharaoh's heart It's not only presupposed in God's hardening of Pharaoh. It's also presupposed in the mercy that he shows to us. In fact, when Paul quotes from Exodus 33, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. If you back up just a few verses in that context, you know what God says? The Lord said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are stiff-necked. And if for a single moment I came up among you, I would consume you. God's saying to them, look, I'll wipe you off the face of the earth. You're so hard-hearted. And yet God has mercy. When God, in other words, shows his mercy, it's not just to some people who are more virtuous than others, who have maybe a more tender heart to God than others because they're born that way or raised that way or whatever it might be. When he is merciful, he is merciful to equally stiff-necked people but you know the promise of the gospel is this Ezekiel gives it says of those whom the Lord saves I will give them one heart and a new spirit I'll put within them I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I'll give you a heart of flesh That's the good news this morning if you're here with us and you're hearing all these things and they all sound strange to you and you don't really know what it all means but you know one thing. You know that you're alienated from God. You know that you're here today and for all the games and gimmicks that you put on for other people you don't know God. You've hardened your heart against Him. You've disobeyed His law. You've rebelled and you are deserving His wrath. The good news in the midst of all of this is it doesn't matter how hard your heart has been. God is in the business of taking hard, stony hearts and giving you a heart of flesh. So our challenge to you this morning is that you would open your heart to Him, that you would respond to Him. We don't have an altar call here, but there's an invitation. That you would hear this gospel and that you would lay aside your rebellion and you would repent. You do that, the scripture says you'll be saved. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And we're going to close in a word of prayer and a song here in just a moment. As we do that, 
I'll be around here in the front. We have other elders and teachers who are around. We encourage you. Find one of us. Give us an opportunity to talk to you more about this gospel. Well, let's stand together. Father, we're grateful for this time. Thankful again for the word that comes to us with such clarity. We're grateful for how you have shown your mercy to us. I pray, Father, that you would be merciful to all who are in this room, that all who hear the sound of your word would respond in faith. May you grant them that grace. May you show them your mercy. May you cause your name to be known by your acts of salvation. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.